My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. We took that property to auction as soon as the renovation was finished and the auction hammer went down at, um, we were hoping for eight, and it went down at 955000 So we ended up walking away with a $268,000 clear net profit margin, totally tax-free. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Australia's renovation queen, Sheree Barber. We'll hear how the Aussie battler earned $60 for two years' work, spent her 20s painting kitchens instead of clubbing which led her having $175 in her bank account by the time she was 29 and so much more. Barber begins her busy days early in the morning, giving her plenty of time to perfect both roles as renovation queen and super mum. My day normally begins at 4am. I try to go for a run. Um, I normally sneak in about an hour of emails. Uh, so literally from about five to six um, emails. And then most days I actually have a makeup artist at my house doing my hair and makeup for television. Um, that'll normally get done by about 6.30, then I'm traveling to site. Um, I'm normally on site most mornings at 7 or 7.30. And then from 7 till 3 o'clock or 7 a.m. to about 2.30, I'm on site renovating. I normally leave site about 2.30 so I can pick up my daughter at 3.10 from the school gate. Then I normally ferry her around in the afternoon to her activities get home, make dinner, and then I pass out about 8.30. Yeah, that's a pretty typical day. And obviously during the day, I do my TV filming and be a TV presenter. So yeah, it's a very cool day. But you know, some days some days on the weekends, um, I don't do any of that. And uh, you normally find me at, you know, numerous airports on the weekends doing public speaking gigs. Oh, wow. That, that is full on. And I guess I, I'm curious, um, the reason why you get up so early to go on site, is it because that's when the tradies are usually on site to, to catch up with them? And Most tradies, like core trade hours are 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. So it always helps if you are on site at that time. But I have a really good team and they can quite often get the site um, started for the day. If I, you know, if there's something on where I have to take my daughter to school, um, I, they'll, they'll open the site for me, get it underway, and then I can just come in. So that's the great thing about renovating. It's perfect for perfect job for mums who are juggling kids and all sorts of stuff. Wow. You are definitely a super mum, especially with what you do. That's awesome. And are you can carry running multiple projects at the at one time usually is that what what happens i'm always working on at least three or four projects at a time so i'll normally have one renovation in progress at any point in time um i don't like to overlap projects um so what i do is i do single projects at a time but i do fast renovations so typically i'll renovate a whole house inside and out in eight to ten days um, and you don't want to be doing that juggling in other projects. So even though I have other projects in progress, just from a planning perspective, I don't physically do any more than one at a time. However, I have been known to do six. Um, I think my worst one ever was six at a time. And that was a bit chaotic. Most people um, get stressed doing one renovation in their lifetime. Yeah. So when you got six on the go at the same time, it's yeah bedlam. And it's not what I recommend most people to do to stay focused on the project at hand. Do it, do it well, get it done and then move on to your next one. 
If you can do that, you'll remain sane. And you'll stay married too. She grew up in Kingswood, a suburb in Sydney's west, and is proud to call herself a Westie. Four children in my family. I'm the oldest. Um, and obviously my mum and dad. My dad was a, an earth mover. And all through the 70s, I was born in 1970. I'm going to tell you that anyway, because believe it or not, it's the most Googled thing on me on the internet. Um, yeah, yes. But people just want to know how old I am. And second most Googled thing is Sheree Barber married. Um, so for anybody listening, no, I'm not. <laughs> Stop Googling. Um, but I'm very close. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I... Um, Born into a very um, average Aussie Butler family. Um, we certainly never went overseas. Um, our holidays were Budgie Woy Caravan Park and that was about it and they were fun times. Um, and my mum was a stay-at-home mum so she raised us four children. She, They got my parents got married pretty young when they were 20 um, and had kids straight after. So, I, um, sorry, they were married at 19. I was born at 20. Um, and... Um, um, she was a stay-at-home mum, which is very common to what a lot of women did back in the 1970s. Um, but then what happened was an event happened in my family um, in 1985 that sort of turned my family's world upside down. And I won't go into all the gory details, but um, my parents got divorced the following year as a result of that. Um, and so my mum was suddenly single and, um, you know, four dependent children and uh, she applied for every single job and nobody would give her a job because she had no career history. You know, obviously people don't, um, a lot of organisations, companies just back then didn't value somebody who raised children. So, and she was pretty much, you know, didn't have a terrible amount of skills um, from an office perspective or anything like that. So she struggled to get a job. And so what she did is she somehow managed to go to the bank and get a a $30,000 loan to buy a shop. So she thought, okay, if I can't get a job, I'm just going to go and um, create my own income through owning a business. And unfortunately, that business didn't go very well. So um, she bought the shop and it just didn't it didn't even cover the rent. Um, so in all truthfulness, she dug herself into a bigger financial grave. Um, and what happened was she tried to sell the shop. Nobody wanted to buy the shop. Um and what happened was she started applying for jobs again and she managed to get a job in a nursing home, just um, emptying bedpans and lifting older people into beds, just a very laborious sort of job. And I literally, had, I had just started year 11. I was the youngest kid in the class um, in year 11. And I literally came home from school one day. I'd only, I was only a couple of weeks into year 11 when my mum said to me, I've got to rip you out of school. You've got to go run the shop. She tried to sell it but couldn't sell the shop. And I said, what? And she said, you've got to go run the shop until the shop is sold. And I said, how long is that going to take? And she said, as long as it takes. I don't know. So at the time, I was um, I, I was around this early 16 marks. I was either late 15s or early 16s. I don't recall exactly. And um, so she ripped me out of school. And I went and sat, um, had to do a four-hour commute every single day as a, let's just call it 16, as an early 16-year-old had to do a four-hour commute there and back um, on public transport every day. I sat all day in a shop that made no money and then I closed the shop home and I did that um, six days a week. I did that for two years and I got paid $60 for two years' work because that's all I, my mother could afford to pay me. Her mum's experience gave Barbara the drive to work hard and taught her very different lessons that she would have learnt at school. I very rarely talk about my personal life and it's something that, um, so, you know, somebody, you know, about a year ago actually, somebody put something on my Facebook page that said, oh, it's so easy for you to make money because um, you come from a wealthy family and I just, I actually got quite offended at that comment of the, on the time and I thought, oh my God, it's so further from the truth. We had no money and the wealth that I've created, I've earned every single dollar of it with my own hands by by not being the smartest girl on the planet, just by working incredibly hard. Um, so what happened was, um, you know, so recently I've started to talk about my personal life because I think a lot of people are in my situation. A lot of people don't come from a wealthy background. They weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. You know, they weren't raised in families that had all the years and graces and the best education. That's not representative of the average Australian. So I started to share my story in the hope that it does actually inspire people who maybe came from terrible childhoods or not so great upbringings that it doesn't define who you are as an individual. 
um, quite often, if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs or a lot of really successful people in life, most of the wealthy people have been the people that have come from nothing because they've got that drive inside them to want a better life. So, um, yeah, so, you know, she, she, I sat in that shop for two years and then she sold the shop. So it was two years that she sold the shop. She sold the shop for a loss. So she walked away with the financial debt from that as well. And then about um, a couple of weeks after my mum sold the shop, I got a phone call from um, the hospital saying, you need to come up. Um, you need to come up. Your mother's actually had a nervous breakdown. Um, and that was quite a terrible thing to witness that. Um, and at the time, you know, my mum sort of become addicted to certain things and it wasn't a good time. It wasn't a good time for her. It wasn't a good time for myself. But I look back on that experience and I think even though it was terrible for me at the time, I actually look back and I think it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because at a very young age, I was running a small business, even though it was a failure of a business. Um, it taught me the, the meaning of hard work. It taught me the meaning of how hard it is actually to make a dollar. And what it most importantly told me is that even though I love my mother dearly, I didn't ever want to be like my mother and struggle financially. I never wanted to be that person. And so what I did is I, I literally walked out of that experience. I actually, when the shop was sold, I went back and I thought, okay, I'll finish my education. I'll re-enroll back in year 11 because that got taken away from me at um, late 15s, early 16s, whatever the age was that it was. I said, I can't recall that exactly. And um, I went back. I re-enrolled in, in the same school. I was now the oldest kid in the class and I lasted six weeks. I just matured beyond my belief that I couldn't readjust back to the classroom environment. So I went out and got a job. That's really strong adversity that you've come from, especially from, from those experiences that you had. And that first job that you got, was it anything related to property? Or? I wasn't brought up in a wealth creation sort of mindset family. My, my family mentality was more one of survival. Um, and so I didn't get brought up with, with any form of um, knowledge about wealth creation or there was a lot of things there I didn't learn in my childhood and and the same for my siblings and you know some of my siblings weren't so lucky they didn't you know turn out um you know they didn't scathe um that sort of environment very well so um I just sort of I, I walked out you know by the time the shop was sold and all of that happened I was about 18 sort of 18 years old 18 turning 19 and I just thought okay I've got to go get a job that was my mentality back then so I went and applied for a job at 3M Australia and this company was really great. Um, I actually attribute this company to, to part of my success um, because 3M is a great company. It's a big global international company. Um, you know, for the people that are listening, you know, who may not know have heard of 3M, you know, they make all the Scotch products, post-it notes, 40,000 products worldwide. So they're a huge company. And I started in customer service, just answering phones, um, you know, product inquiries just on the phone, a very junior job. And I'd spend the next decade of my life there um, and, and I just progressed through the ranks, sort of went from customer service coordinator to marketing assistant to marketing coordinator, junior product manager. And I ended up, by the time I left 3M, I was a senior product manager. Um, but this company was really powerful because they invested heavily in staff. And I needed that. I needed an education because I felt like at school I didn't really, I really hadn't got any sort of, I went to, I went to year 10 in effect. Um, I'd only just started year 11 when my schooling ended. Um, and so what happened was um, they really invested heavily in staff training. So they taught me about business plans, strategic planning, checklists, templates, systems, all things that would become absolutely vital, um, vital things in my career as a renovator that I didn't know back then by default. So I stayed there for 10 years. Um, I, I joined 3M when I was about 19. I was there from 19 to 29. And at the same time, I also had met, um, uh, I was with my boyfriend and I was, I was with him for about 11 years. Um, and at the time, you know, we were pretty serious about each other. We weren't married, we were very, still very young. And he sort of came from an area that wasn't too dissimilar to mine and a similar background. And, you know, we were crazy in love and, um, 
we thought, okay, we're going to buy a house together. We're going to save and buy a house. So what I did, um, he wanted to do that. I wanted to do that at a young age. And we weren't thinking buy 20 houses back then. We were just thinking buy one house that we can live in forever, happily ever after. You know, we'll probably get married and this will be our forever home. We're quite naive. Um, And so I went and got a second job at a leagues club and I worked at that second job for eight years. Um, Just a local leagues club and, you know, some nights I'd work in the keno desk, some nights I'd work in the bar. You know, it's just a sort of like a bit of a go club gopher sort of job. And that's how I got my deposit to buy my very first property. Um, we went half. So my first property deal was a um, a joint, like a co-ownership. My boyfriend went halves. I went halves. We weren't married, so we weren't sharing money at the time. Um, so he saved up his money. I saved up mine. And that's how we bought our very first property together at age 21. And I thought that was a really good thing for a girl out west who really sort of had come from a um, quite reasonably sort of Aussie battler background, I thought I was doing well by buying my first property at 21. Um, What happened was we bought this property um, and we bought the first property on a six-lane highway. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't do any due diligence because I didn't even know what that meant back then. Um, So this was in 1991. We bought our first property. As I said, I was born in 1970. So... Bought the property and as soon as we moved in, I just went, oh my goodness, what have we done? It was, this house was so noisy, like from all the cars and freight trucks zooming past. It was one of those houses there where you just think a runaway truck's going to come slamming in your front, like through your front window at any moment. And I just said, we've got to get out. Like this is horrible. We've got to get out. So what we did is we embarked on a quick cosme, um, a quick cleanup actually. You can't even call it a renovation. It was, um, largely just we bought some paint and we painted the inside of the house ourselves. We just lightened it all up because when we bought the house, it was heritage colours. It was like, you know, fuchsia green wall, um, fuchsia plum colour walls and heritage green. And, you know, it was quite a dark house inside. So we just bought some paint and we lightened and brightened everything up. We did it ourselves because we never had any money to hire any tradies. Our bank account, literally by the time we bought the house, it had a couple of dollars left over because we scraped together every dollar to buy the property in the first place. Um, And we just ripped up the grungy carpets. We didn't polish the floorboards, even though the floorboards needed a polishing. We had no money to hire floor sanders. And we largely went on a rampage with a set of garden clippers and a lawnmower and we cleaned up the unruly front and backyard. And that just, it just made the property a little bit more presentable. And we put the property back on the market straight away. Now, we weren't looking at making a profit. We, we were getting out of this property purely to get ourselves out of a bad decision. Um, and we were hoping that we could cover all our costs and, and not lose any money. And, and we did exactly that. We covered all our costs, you know, our initial costs that we had to outlay, our stamp duty, our legals, our mortgage. Um, and we sold it and we made a very small, modest profit. It was only like $2,000. But we didn't lose money as 21-year-olds. You know, we turned from I turned from 21 to 22 in the process, and we sold the house. I was 22. Um, and what we did is we actually went and bought another property, and we thought, okay, we stuffed up that first year, that first property. Let's go buy in the same suburb in a quieter street. So we went and bought in the same suburb this time, an unrenovated property in the quiet street. And then we literally just would spend the next next eight years of our lives renovating that house inch by inch, room by room. And, you know, when I wasn't working my full-time job and I wasn't working my five to seven shifts a week at the night at the leagues club, any spare time I had off, I wasn't in a nightclub. I was in, I was painting walls on a Saturday night or we just did that and we added, you know, a bit of value to the property and, you know, so we weren't looking at, again, we weren't professional renovators. We weren't, none of that was even in our mind back then. We were just renovating this home to create a beautiful home that we were going to live in forever. Mm, sounds like the perfect home. <laughs> I look back on that renovation now and I think it was so disgusting on so many levels. Like the way we renovated it back then was terrible because we just didn't know. We were winging our way through the process. We were just like a lot of people we just don't know. You don't get taught renovating at school. Barbara and her partner renovated the home room by room and were happy with it at the time. But she looks back on it differently now. 
So it was our own home. It was just our own principal place of residence that we were just renovating slowly, room by room, as time allowed. Um, and I look back now, I actually found some photos of that property um, in a, an old box that I had and I was really happy to find the photos. But I look back on the photos now, like we installed like just the worst kitchen ever that we got incredibly ripped off at the time. That, that property, when we installed the kitchen, was in 1996 and we paid $15,000 for this kitchen in 1996, which I just look back on that now and think, gosh, we got so incredibly ripped off. You know, the layout was fundamentally flawed. The colours were all wrong. We hired a painting team to paint the external colours that now just send shivers down my spine. So we were just clueless, like a lot of people. What um, actually spurred you on to get into renovating? Was it after renovating your own principal place of residence or was it something else? I do a lot of media interviews each week with the Australian Press and one of the common questions that people ask, as you've just done myself, as you've done yourself, is um, how do I get started in renovating? And I always call myself the accidental renovator. I never woke up one day and went, I'm going to become a renovator today. I never went to a seminar and went, you know what, I'm going to become a renovator. I fell into renovating by accident. When in all truthfulness, that first property, when I sold it and I made that small profit, that was my first taste at making money a different way outside of a traditional job. And I sort of went, oh, that's all right. You know, that was sort of nice. You didn't lose money. Let's go buy another unrenovated house. So even though I wasn't still thinking, okay, be a professional renovator, I thought, okay, well, maybe I can just buy something unrenovated and add a little bit of value to it. So yeah, I fell into renovating by by buying a totally dud, my first property deal, total dud. Just like some renovations, sometimes relationships just don't last forever and Barbara and her partner broke up when she was 29. Oh, it's fine. We're still actually great mates today but we just grew apart. Like we were together, you know, quite young and we were together for a whole decade. That's a long time when you're in your 20s to be with somebody for, you know, 11 or 12 years. That's actually a long time. And we just naturally grew apart, but we're still like really good mates today. So we actually um, dis- we decided to split very amicably and um, we actually sold the house. We put the house up for sale. So we sold the house, you know, fairly quickly and um, the bank got paid back the mortgage and then we split whatever was left over after the settlement proceeds, we split 50-50 down the middle. And so just to give you some perspective of where I was sitting financially, that was the only house that we had owned. We didn't own any other property. So when we sold it, we had no property. And when we split the money 50-50 down the middle, I, I was age 29 and I had 175000 in my bank account. That was my net wealth. So I felt that – I know. So I felt even though I hadn't made a huge amount of money – I think that people should put things into perspective. 175000 isn't anything to be sniffed at either. You know, a lot of people go their whole lives and they don't have five or $10,000 to show for their name. So even though it wasn't like millions, I felt like I was heading the right way, like renovating, like, you know, painting houses and doing the gardens and all that sort of basic cosmetic stuff. I felt like I was heading in the right direction financially, sort of never to be broke like my, like I saw my mother. I saw what lack of money did to my mother and I just knew I never wanted to be like that. So I felt like I was heading in the right direction. So then what happened was um, I turned, I was single, I turned 30 um, and then I would actually spend, um, I actually met my next partner and I would sp- I spent the next, <laughs> the next 13 years of my life with him. So I'm very much a long-term relationship girl. Um, I've only really had sort of two long relationships in my life and um, so I, I met him and he, he was quite interested in property as well and what we did is we, um, we well, mainly myself, um, I thought okay I'm going to actually give this renovating thing quite a serious crack now, you know, because I, I felt like I'd made good money but, but with, you know, um, if, with what I'd done in the past, those two properties all through my 20s. So when I turned 30, um, this is really the beginning of my professional career. I spent three months doing it. I chose a suburb in Sydney and I researched everything. I I call it my intensive due diligence period. It's a three-month intensive due diligence period. And I researched everything, um, the suburb, the demographics, the suburb attributes, the historical 
you know, capital growth, the, the future capital growth, the demographics, the housing types. I researched, I went to all the open for inspections, I went to the attended auctions, I found out who the best real estate agents were, who the best auctioneers were, and I was preparing myself for me, um, I was doing all of this in preparation for me buying my next property that I was now going to do a lot more strategically, not winging it. So we ended up, um, uh, with my partner Steve, uh, we ended up buying this uh, little house in uh, Roselle, which is about you know, 6Ks out from Sydney CBD. It's an inner city suburb. And we ended up buying this property for 537000 It was you know, a house that was had good bones. It was structurally fine. It was perfectly livable, but it was just cosmetically tired. And what we did is we got in and did a eight-week renovation. So we both still had our full-time jobs. And how uh, we managed this is we, we, you know, we popped on site of an evening to make sure all the tradies were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Not all of them did what they were supposed to be doing. Um, yeah, so we, I def- we definitely had some road bumps. We had some issues with two sets of tradies. One of them was painters um, where we came to site one night and we discovered that the painters had failed to wash the house um, externally, they'd failed to wash the house externally prior to painting. So there were cobwebs under the paint. There were bits of grit and dirt under the paint. That you, you know, you sort of run your finger over the, your hands over the weatherboard, and you could feel the clumps of dirt. So we we sacked the painters on that um, that second yeah, that sorry that um, that project and a bit of rework. So it wasn't all smooth sailing, but it was nothing catastrophic either. Nothing that couldn't be fixed. It was just a little bit of rework. My my due diligence told me that. Um, that you know, I could comfortably resell this house for eight hundred thousand. So my total project costs on that project, I bought it for we bought it for five thirty seven, and um, we outlaid in total just a tad under one hundred and fifty. So that was stamp duty, legals, reno costs, resale cost. Um, we did the, that project as our principal place of residence. Um, so there was it was totally tax free. We were hoping and praying that we um, could sell it for eight hundred thousand because that's what my due diligence told me should be a comfortable, um, um, you know, target for that. So we were thinking, okay, the project owes us six ninety. If we can make a hundred grand quick profit while we're holding down our full time job, while we've got that income still coming in, we thought that was like a bloody great result. Um, yeah, so we took it to auction. Yeah. So, you know, our life was very unbalanced during that eight weeks. You know, this was prior prior to us having our daughter together. Um, you know, we, we, we were working really hard. Um, life was unbalanced. It is what it is. Um, if you want to get ahead, quite often your life will need to be unbalanced in some respect. You can't have your cake and, and eat it as well. Um, and we took that property to auction as soon as the renovation was finished and the auction hammer went down at, um, we're hoping for eight. And it went down at nine hundred and fifty-five thousand. So we ended up walking away with a two hundred and sixty-eight thousand dollar clear net profit margin, totally tax-free. And when that auction hammer went down, it was my sliding doors moment that I just went, "Oh my gosh, what what are we doing?" You know, I I, I saw that money that we made. It was like winning the first division of lotto, and I just I threw myself. We I we threw ourselves into renovating. And we've, you know, I've never looked back. So fast forward 18 years and I've, I've now personally completed 110 projects. Barbara elaborates on a sliding doors moment and how it changed her life. I was a very conscientious worker working um, at 3M and, you know, the jobs, the office jobs. I've only ever had two office jobs, 3M, and I moved across to L'Oreal. Um, and, you know, so my last time I was actually in full-time employment um, was, you know, back in the year 2000. So when that when that auction hammer went down, I quit my job a couple of weeks later and I just threw myself in. And I hate to say it because it sounds so cliché, but it's absolutely 100% the truth. Coming up after the break... Barbara reveals why she completes her renovations so quickly. And I know that every day that I get slack on my renovation, it's costing me money. It's costing me lost rent. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, why do you do your renovations in such a fast time? Why do you put yourself under that pressure? She explains how she pays herself her wages. And when I say when I go on holiday or if I want to go buy myself a new dress, it comes out my lot, one of my lines of credit. Renovators live off their lines of credit, their, line, their equity lines. That, 
equity is your wages as a renovator. She shares her advice on how to know what you want and how to get there. The sooner you know what you want, what you're aiming for, then you've got to put the goals. Go, okay, I want I want $1,000 a week rolling in passive income until the day I cark it. Um, how am I going to, how am I going to make that happen? What do I want to do to make that happen? The sooner you can have that awakening, the better. And that's up next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor. Is your cash or equity currently earning you 1 to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a higher return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Barbara has completed 110 renovations in 18 years and she has one that became a turning point for her. I guess what was beneficial for me is that very early on, I sort of, um, you know, that that first, that sorry, that project that I did, that project number three where I did it a lot more strategically, I call that my first professional project and I, I actually, I did that very strategically, like I really put in the time to research everything on that and Luckily, I was able to, to learn what I learned on that project. I was able to roll that into future projects. And so for me, the process actually became easier and easier, not harder and harder. I can honestly say I, there's been no project that I've actually found extremely difficult. I've never lost any money on a property, but what I have lost, I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in mistakes. I haven't found the actual renovation of properties hard, it's the mistakes. It was things like paying too much for stuff, getting ripped off by tradies, paying too much for stuff, shopping, um, you know, buying the wrong fixtures and fittings, um, shopping in the wrong shops, paying too much for stuff. Um, You know, it was maybe not choosing, um, you know, spending money where I didn't need to spend money getting too fancy and getting all designer when I didn't really need to be getting designer. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned now, I've been renovating now for 28 years, 18 years full-time professionally. The first 10 years, I say, look, I was a hobbyist. I was a, a weekend warrior. I was just kicking around with my own, own two homes in my 20s, nothing serious. But I became a hardcore renovator in the year 2000 and, and obviously been doing that professionally for the last 18 years. But what I would have done differently is... What I didn't do back in my early days, I didn't strategically map anything out. I was just winging it. I was just buying, you know, I'd go, I'd finish one unrenovated project and then I would go and look for my next unrenovated dump. And I look back now all these years later and I think, gosh, if I just sat down back on project number one, what I failed to do on that first professional project, I failed to sit down and, and, and say to myself two questions essentially, Sheree, when do you want to retire? And Cherie, when you retire, how much money would you like rolling in passive income each week? Now, you know, I, I didn't look at back then at what my ideal life, you know, what can my ideal life look like and what will that ideal life cost me? And so that's the biggest thing. People, A lot of people don't do that. They don't know when they want to retire, how much money they want to have rolling in each month, each week coming in retirement. So therefore, they don't know that. Therefore, how can you set your goals? Um And so I didn't do any of that. And I look back now and I think, well, if I had actually mapped that out, I would have completely bought the completely different property than what I actually bought all in my early years of renovating. So just to try and simplify that and make make sense of that, what I did is I first my first renovation I started about six or seven Ks out from the Sydney CBD. I was buying property around 537. You know, I sold that property for nine fifty five. So very quickly, I was inching up around those properties that were I was buying in my first couple of years. Properties that were around seven hundred and fifty thousand, a million dollars in value, unrenovated, spending about three or four hundred thousand on them, and then reselling them for high ones. So I'd normally make about three hundred grand profit. 
but I look back, so I, I consumed, I actually tied up a lot of my money. Like I couldn't do multiple projects because I had so much money invested in the project that it was on the go. So I, I couldn't jump into the next one until that was either sold or revalued. And I look back now, so I did a lot of that. And I look back now and I think, you know what, I should, probably shouldn't have done those really expensive properties. I should have been buying properties, for example, in Sydney's West, where 18 years ago, I could have been buying those properties for like $120,000 that are out, all now worth like eight, dollars $900,000. Back then, I probably could have bought 100 of those properties. So, it, you know, I could have been, even though I'm a wealthy person today and I'm not complaining, I think if I had strategically mapped it out, I could have been a hell of a lot wealthier if I just knew what I was doing from a strategy strategy viewpoint. I had no strategy. And it's really not until the last five years that I've really sort of harnessed the power of strategy first. For Barbara, the decision to buy, renovate and hold or buy, renovate and sell all depends on the market and the person's situation. A lot of people will do the buy, renovate and sell strategy where they'll get in and out very quickly. They'll manufacture that instant equity, they'll sell and they'll cash out. But it's not a strategy that I'm really endorsing because A, not every suburb in Australia is a buy, renovate and sell suburb. Some suburbs are buy, buy and hold suburbs. Some suburbs you can buy and sell. Um, it also depends on what stage the property market cycle is in. As you know, Tyrone, the um, property cycle goes through four key stages, you know, the boom, bust, um, recovery, slowdown, not in that order. And um, renovating, your ability to renovating and sell and your ability to renovate and rent depends on what stage of the cycle you're actually in. And it also depends on how much equity. If you're starting out from a very low base where you haven't got much money behind you, you might find that you might need to do a buy, renovate and sell for your first couple of projects and as you start to build equity, then you can transition to the buy, renovate and rent strategy. So you've just got to take your personal circumstances. There is no right or wrong answer. What I do say to people though is, you know, most of my students I'm encouraging to buy, renovate and rent because when you do make the decision to sell, there's a lot of costs. You lose a lot of your profit margin capital gains tax, agents commission, marketing cost, property styling cost. On a low budget property, those costs alone can be $30,000. And that's a lot of profit that you never get back. Also, when you sell, you lose a bigger chunk of profit, which is called long-term capital growth. At the end of the day, it's compounding capital growth that makes you wealthy. So, you know, I say try and avoid selling at all expenses unless you absolutely need to. Several years ago, she moved from structural renovations to purely cosmetic renovations and has found that this works best for her situation. The reality is a structural renovation, from the time you buy the property to the time you then, you know, when you buy a structural renovation, as soon as that auction hammer goes down or you buy it for sale, you know, you need to go off and you need to get a site survey done, you need to go engage an architect, um, you know, then your architect produces their plans, which will take anywhere between one to three months, depending on how slow or fast your architect is or your draftsman. Then you've got to lodge it in council. Most councils these days, you know, most councils are taking between, on average, six to 12 months to actually approve your development application. Um, they say 40 days, but none of them ever do 40 days. Um, and so, you know, you've, you're a best part of a year just into the planning process and then you've actually got to build the extension or the, you know, do the, um, the new build and most builders will quote somewhere between six to nine months to do that. So a structural renovation, pretty much the timeline, one and a half to two years, typical time frame for a structural renovation from start to finish. The market can also vary, um, the market can drop within two years. You know, from the start of a project to the finish, the market can look completely different. So what I did is I transitioned out of structurals and I moved 100% solely into cosmetic renovations where A, I can buy the properties at a lot lower price. I can get in very quickly as a renovator. So with my cosmetics, I do my cosmetics. I'll transform a whole house in eight to 10 days. Now, I'm not, I'm not um, advocating anybody trying to do a whole house in eight to 10 days. It is a bit like renovating on crack. Um, yep. 
So I always say to the public, just try and do your cosmetic renovations over the course of six to eight weeks. And that's a very comfortable time for most Australians, you know, while they're holding down their full-time job even. But so you have the ability to get in and out very quickly um, as a cosmetic renovator in in a lot of a lot of the changes you make as a cosmetic renovator don't require council approval. Um, you may not need a licensed builder depending on which state of Australia you are. So there's a lot of really good reasons um, to be a cosmetic renovator because it's, it's like fast turning over your money fast. After you've done the renovation, then would you go back to the bank to re- revaluate so that way you can get the equity back out to move on to the next project? Renovators, we live off our equity lines. So you just go back, you're obviously creating that instant equity in the renovation. You bought the property at this price, you've got in it during the renovation, you need to spend the right amount of money um, and then you obviously get it revalued at X amount higher. So in the game of renovating for profit, it's all percentages. You buy here, you multiply by this, you resell here. So um, yeah, and what I do now, instead of doing one structural renovation, I do multiple cosmetics at a time, depending on how my diary's going. I may do two renovations, two cosmetics at the same time. Very similar projects where I can just move my trades from site to site. I can negotiate, um, you know, two two bathroom tiling jobs so you can lower your cost a little bit better. So there's lots of ways you can do it if you're smart. As you said, it's a numbers game at the end of the day and ensuring that everything's met within timeframes to make sure that the project's delivered on time as well. And I know that every day that I get slack on my renovation, it's costing me money. It's costing me lost rent. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, why do you do your renovations in such a fast time? Why do you put yourself under that pressure? And my simple answer is, well, yeah, every day that that property sits ling- lingering with not a significant amount of work happening each day, it's actually lost rental income. And and just from my experience also, the, your trade team tends to get on a roll um, because we're doing, you know, our renovations in a in a fast period of time. You know, even if it's it's going over two or three weeks, two or three weeks, they're focused on that project. Like there's an end goal that's very, very um, touchable. So I find that the momentum stays um, is much higher in a faster renovation rather than one that that trickles out over six months. Almost like a manufacturing process. Once you start on one section of the belt, you can't really quite pull it out and stop them. And it's kind of no different when you're doing renovating. Well, tradies also have other jobs to go to. So when they're on yours, they're like focused on that and then they can go to the next one. Um, and so... Yeah, so lots of reasons to do um, quick renovations, but um, you obviously got to, you know, if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that the quality of those renovations is not suffering anywhere down the line. And that's very easily managed during the renovation. She funds her renovations using her lines of equity, which helps her to manage her cash flow and make sure she doesn't blow the budget. For all of my properties, I have lines of credit. So on all of my investment properties, I have those maximized up to the maximum lend typically 80%. Um, It's not to say that I owe 80% on those properties, I don't, Um, but there'll be lines of credit in place for all of those properties. So in in my bank account, for example, on all of my, like I'll just just pluck a random figure out of my head. Um, You know, for example, I have a lot of properties out in Sydney's West. I might have one property where, um, you know, the property might be worth 600,000. I only have, um, I have a line of credit for um, whatever that is, you know, 80% of 600,000. What's that? Uh, 600,000, So um, line of credit will be 480, but I might only owe 350. So I have $130,000 available equity sitting in that account. And that's all I do is every time I do a renovation or I need to pay a deposit on something, I just pull it out of one of my lines of credit somewhere and my, I fund my renovation from my lines of credit. And obviously, you need to make sure that you're accounting for absolutely everything from an accounting point of view um, so that you can maximise all of those tax deductions at the end of the year. So, and, and when I say when I go on holiday or if I want to go buy myself a new dress, it comes out of my lot, one of my lines of credit. Renovators live off their lines of credit, their, line, their equity lines. But equity is your wages as a renovator. So it's just a bit of a a different way that you look at your mindset um, as a mindset matter because people say why would you be eating away at all of your equity but it's not eating it away it's actually continuing to do deals you're generating an income from your equity lines you're taking some out you take out 
to refund your deposit, your renovation, your meals, your dresses, whatever. And then when you do a renovation, it tops back up. It's like a bit of a bit like a funnel that goes in and out. Constantly, your bank account is going up, down. So when you when you you know when you sell a property, your bank your, your lines of equity go up. And then when you buy a deposit, when you pay the next deposit, the next property goes down. And then when you pay tradies, it goes down, down, down. And then when you get a revert, it goes up again. So yeah, it's a, it's a concept that a lot of people struggle to understand. How do you get sort of more of a consistency or, or in your in your sort of cash flow situation? Because you, you've got your your business running as well too, selling um, you know your courses and also speaking as well. Is that also helping with regards to cash flow? No, it's completely separate business. So I don't involve my own personal properties. Like the, my property uh, renovation projects are completely separate to my public speaking business, two totally separate entities. My public speaking business pays me a wage as well. Um, but I also have, you know, obviously my lines of credit that come from my property. Baba is a big believer in education, changing people's mindsets, having moved from a survival mindset in her early years to where she is today. One thing I just wanted to mention as well, and also I have um, all of my properties because I buy and hold a lot of stuff. I also have all my rental income as well. So my properties generate rental income and most of my properties are positive cash flow. So they're each property after the mortgages, they still put surplus money back into my bank account as well. So I do generate an income through my property investments from that way as well, besides the equity that I'm creating. But I think, look, money mindset-wise, how can somebody create that? Um, I guess I guess for me, the way that I wasn't born with that mindset and um, as I said earlier, I was more a survival mindset. I think the best way that people to do that is is education. It's what I did back um, when I did that first professional project. Um, you know, I started reading books and I went to a couple of seminars and all that sort of stuff. And I started to educate myself. But in all truthfulness, it's something that people just they don't really learn. A lot of people struggle with um, strategy. They struggle with mindset. Um, I just think. I just think you need to be very clear on your goal and try and put yourself in that mindset. I don't know. I speak to a lot of Australians around the country and a lot of people are just very unclear about their strategy. They're very unclear about what they need to do from a a mindset perspective. A lot of people just don't think about it. A lot of people think mindset is rubbish, but it's not. It's, It's everything. She recommends asking yourself two simple questions to set yourself on the right path to adjusting your mindset. I think um, what I say, and I say this in a lot in my public speaking gigs because I try and give people a very sort of simple, basic approach. And where I start with them is is essentially those two questions that I asked, I, I stated before. I say, look, you, it's not about it's not about how many properties you own. It's truly not about that. What you essentially need to find out is when do you want to retire? How much money do you want in retirement? That's that's really all people really need to know because from that alone, if people go away and calculate what their ideal lifestyle looks like, then they can actually put strategies in place to actually go, okay, how this is what I want. How can I actually achieve it? I, I believe it can be a very simple thing. Don't overcomplicate it. The average Australian typically, like when you look at the average profile of most Australians and they work out their, their ideal life, most Australian, if you, if you base it on a, a property that's worth around 500000 most Aussies need to try and reach somewhere between three to five properties fully paid off at retirement. We know that the average Australian doesn't actually achieve that and largely because they don't set these goals early, these financial goals early on in life and then they sort of learn, they learn stuff like this later in life and sometimes that can be a little bit too late. It makes it extremely hard to achieve that. So the sooner you know what you wanted, what you're aiming for, then you've got to put the goals. Go, okay, I want I want $1,000 a week rolling in passive income until the day I cark it. Um, how, am I going to, how am I going to make that happen? What do I want to do to make that happen? The sooner you can have that awakening, the better. Barbara has achieved her success without any assistance from mentors, which she attributes to not being exposed to successful people in her early years. I just wasn't fortunate enough to have somebody to hold my hand and say, do this, do that. I wish I did. I've really had to learn things the hard way. I've really had to figure things out for myself. And look, I've done very, very well for myself. You know, I've done very well for myself. Surprising, I could have turned out a complete and utter disaster, but I didn't. I think the thing that really got me through um, that sort of poverty background into a wealthier, um, a wealthier space is I just 
I'm actually just my biggest thing I think is that I just worked hard you know people say work smarter not harder I agree with that but I was the person that worked hard I've worked incredibly hard over the last 28 you know years the reality is being on a renovation site it's not glamorous you're covered in dust you go home with dust in your hair most days you look like somebody who doesn't have 20 cents to their name because you're covered in paint dust crap construction waste um you know and I just worked hard I just thought okay I'm going to renovate I'll just stick my head down I just did it and I winged my way through the process I winged my way through a lot of renovations made a lot as I said made an incredibly lot of made a lot of mistakes but um, I just think my biggest attribute is I'm a hard worker not the smartest girl like I'm not stupid I'm not a university qualified whatever Um, I don't need to be that a university degree doesn't agree it doesn't guarantee wealth what will largely guarantee wealth is your mindset and your willingness to work hard you know, I'm, I just want to tell you something, Tyrone. I, I live in a street um, in Sydney, and my, look, my street is a, a pretty exclusive street. It's actually the wealthiest street in my whole region, and I have a, very, a lot of very wealthy people on my street. And, uh, and in fact, I'm the poor kid on the street. Um, and all of my neighbours, my neighbour next door, you know, he sold his business for like $420 million and the neighbour uh, next door, he's a high-flying barrister that charges some crazy amount per week and to his uh, to per hour to his clients and then the guy next to him he builds all the freeways between Sydney and Brisbane he's loaded on the poor kid but you know what we actually got together a couple of years ago for the very first time for a New Year's Eve party where all the neighbours came together and I didn't know my neighbours from a bar or so so I thought okay I'll go along and meet all these guys I'm really glad I did because they're lovely but you know we had one common thread between all of us when we started talking about our backgrounds we all discovered that None of us had a university degree. None of us. We were all like year ten dropouts or year nine. Year one of us. One of them was year eight. You know, I got called out at year eleven. None of us had even literally done our high school certificate. But all of us were hard workers. We had just worked really hard, and we'd build our wealth. So I, I always say, you don't have to be incredibly smart. You've just got to be willing to to work really hard at something and just do something you're passionate about. For me, I love renovating. I spring out of bed at four o'clock in the morning, super excited to put my work boots on because I get to go and, you know, renovate ugly houses that I turn into beautiful homes. I get to have fun and lots of jokes with the good tradies that I work on site with every day. It just feels like a hobby I happen to earn fantastic money from. And I think if somebody can find their passion and then be willing to work incredibly hard at it, wealth will come. If you met yourself 10 years ago, what would you say to her? I I think it would have just been strategy-wise. I think I would have said, hey, get out of these higher value properties and get yourself into the cheap end of town because there's a lot of money to be made in the cheap end of town. I think that's what I I probably would have said to myself. I think that's the only thing I would have changed differently. Look, I'm happy. I've I've earned a a really, you know, I'm very comfortable financially. My daughter's set for life. I, I have a really blessed life i can honestly say i have a blessed life i have a blessed life because of one thing renovating it really is and you know as i said it's not a free road to wealth anybody who's renovating that's listening to this and who's a renovator at the moment they know it's not easy you know some days you'll be on site and you'll be absolutely loving it and then other days you'll think why in hell did i ever want to become a renovator but that's like every job you know so um, yeah, it's just, yeah, that's the only thing I'd change differently. What are you most excited about in your renovation journey, say, over the next five years? For me now, I'm just trying to slow down a little bit. Obviously, I've been like, like, like I said, a renovator on crack, just renovating all these houses. I do between 15 to 20 houses a year. Um, I do about six or seven of my own personal projects every year. And I do somewhere, you know, somewhere around uh you know 10 10 to 15 just depending 10 to 15 tv renovations a year where i'll be renovating a whole house or i'll be renovating somebody's kitchen or bathroom for television and as i get a little bit older like i'm almost turning 50 i just want to slow down a little bit so for me i'll still be renovating when i'm i'll still be renovating until the day that i can't see my renovations anymore you know like i've gone completely blind or death or whatever 
Um, I love what I'll do and I still know that I'll be renovating in the next 20 years, but I won't be going at the intensity that I am. I'm definitely keen to renovate a little bit less and, um, you know, I'm definitely still continuing down the education path. I absolutely love that because I feel like, um, you know, I've been educating for 10 years now and my my program, Cosmetic Renovations for Profit, has become Australia's leading renovation course in Australia by far. We've got over 12,000 students around the country that no other education provider can boast. Um, so I've got a lot of, you know, I've got a lot of that um, students from word of mouth, just from people coming to the course and then going out and saying to their friends, you've got to go do this course. And I really, I really enjoy the education part because for me, I'm living my dream renovating, but now if I can share my passion and help other people not make the same mistakes that I did, well, I'm absolutely going for that. And that's what I've been doing. So I will continue down the educate education path because I, I love just being able to help people and not make the same things that I mistakes that I had to make. Um so yeah, pretty much just a slightly less projects, not crazy. I'll, I'll go from like twenty to maybe ten a year. Still quite a bit. <laughs> it is, yes. Um, and then obviously still continuing down the education path fairly strongly. Yeah. She got into media as accidentally as she did renovations and therefore calls herself the accidental TV renovator. In my early years, back in the year 2000, I was bidding on a lot of property. Like I'd go to auction, I'd miss a lot of properties. Um, and back then, there was, um, they, you know, from time to time, they'd have a journalist and a photographer taking pictures of auctions and what was happening and reporting on auction, resu- auction results. And a journalist actually said to me one day, she came up to me, she goes, who are you? I, I actually see you have bidded on quite a lot of properties. And I said, oh, I'm, like really flippantly, I just said, oh, I just um, buy houses and I get in and renovate them and I'll either sell them or keep them. And she's like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, you're quite a young person. I was only 30. Um, and she said, do you mind if I, we do a story on you? I think it was the Daily Telegraph. And um, I said, oh, okay. So she did a story on me about young people buying property and renovating property and um, so that that was in the newspaper, and I thought, okay, okay, nothing will come of that, and I didn't wasn't expecting anything or wanted anything to come from that. And then today, tonight, Channel 7's Today Tonight saw that article, and they rang me up. They tracked me down somehow, and rang me up about two weeks later, and we said, oh, we saw your article in the Daily Telegraph. Do you mind if we do a story interview on you? So I did. Um, I did that, and then they kept calling me in for about two years. They called me in to do sort of renovation related stories. And then from that, Foxtel saw me and I did um, some home institutions through them. And then the producer from Foxtel became the producer of The Living Room and that's when I sort of became my serious um, serious um, TV sort of presence. And so I've been on The Living Room now. I'm the only um, one of the original cast members. So I've been on that show for um, – I'm just finishing this week, um, my seventh season. And, um, and then obviously Channel 9 saw me on – Channel 10, and they called me up, the Today Show, and said, could you do a few renovations for us? And I said, sure, no problems. And then I think the biggest break was um, uh, HGTV in America did a worldwide casting call for a new um, new renovation shows, and they contacted an Australian agent, and they said, look, do you know, do you know anybody who's like a hardcore renovator? And um, they said, we do know of a girl, but she's not on our books. So they contacted my office. All of this happened without even me knowing. And apparently my team, uh, I've got about 20, 20 staff in my headquarters that look after my public speaking and they sent some photos over and they sent some videos completely unbeknownst to me. I could have killed them. Um, and they sent that to America and they said, oh, we sort of like the look of her and she looks okay and, you know, she looks like she knows what she's doing. So they contacted my office and then they flagged it with me and I actually landed the gig of five-day flip in America by accident as well. So they, um, you know, they, they, there was a bit of a process. I had to go and audition and I had to actually do a real-life renovation in five days and I passed all of that with flying colours and, and then I got my series of five-day flip in America. So all of it's been by accident, like my very first renovation project. <laughs> my whole career is one big accident. Thank you to Sheree Barber, 
our guest on this episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 